Hello and welcome to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics and break down the biggest games. I am Patrick Duffy, lifelong Arsenal supporter, and I'm joined as always by Coach Rodrigo Plaza. Listener, this week we're going to go through the highlights of match week nine, and then we are going to do games of the week. We, we do it a little different here, so we're doing two, games of the week this week, and then we'll wrap up with our predictions for Match Week 10. Rodrigo, we're getting into Thanksgiving. Uh, it's that season of gratitude, so I want to just kick it off. What are you feeling thankful for? Good question. Good question. Yeah, it's, it's right around the corner. It's a couple days away. Um I'm grateful for a lot of things. I'm grateful that I'm on the West Coast uh, and I have been for a while so that family, uh, their Thanksgiving with the family is, is doesn't involve any travel or uh, concerns with that. That's one huge thing, I think. Um, it's been really nice. And then the other is that um, I've had a lot more time just recently to talk with my dad about soccer um, in all these different ways, and it's been really fruitful. I've just been working a lot on curriculum for the for the youth teams, and um, just thinking through that with him so close by has also been like just a, a real treat. So very grateful for those two things. How about you? Much to be grateful for in my life, um, as always. I'm very lucky. In that regard, I feel really grateful for my family. I think there's a lot of stress around the holidays with a lot of families. And I think COVID adds another layer of complication and just having family that's really understanding and supportive and, you know, wanting long-term best for each other. I feel very grateful to have that in my life. I also feel very grateful to have a few days off from Arsenal Football Club. Um, the more time I'm not watching them, the better my mental health is. So, yeah. Cheers. The international, the international <laughs> break, I hate the international break because it's like we're sending players around the world during a plague. It doesn't make any sense. But it's also amazing because it's like a, a, a nice respite from the, the torture that is supporting that team. Um, but... We're going to hop right into running through the games. We're going to try to hit th- hit these games kind of quick because we want to go deep on two um, of the big games from this weekend. So we're going to start with Chelsea 2, Newcastle 0. Uh, kind of some interesting lineup notes for, for this game. Thiago Silva was out coming out from the international break. For Chelsea, no Callum Wilson for Newcastle. Uh, the game gets off to... Kind of a, a, a rough start for Newcastle, to say the least. There's an own goal within the first 10 minutes. Mason Mount is coming down on the right-hand side. He rips in the ball. And it's just it's a tough angle for the defender, the Newcastle defender. Chilwell's right behind him. It kind of looks like Chilwell pushed him, but it ends up being an own goal. It gets VAR'd. It's confirmed. It's just kind of an unfortunate moment for Newcastle, and that really, that, that kind of was it. Uh, Werner has this great run in the 65th minute. He sets up Tammy Abraham for the second goal. And I will say, I thought this game was a game where we saw Werner get to sit a little bit deeper. That, that run to me really exemplified what he's capable of as a player. He takes the ball from the defensive third. He cuts through three defenders to set Tammy free to score. Um, I thought he was excellent in this game. I thought Conte was excellent in this game. We've been bashing him a little bit of late. But he was really end-to-end a great player. Newcastle were on the other side of the ball. Terrible. 
only one shot on target the whole game, really looked super limited. Without Callum Wilson, um, it was a very muted performance for them. I wanted to ask you, though, Rodrigo, what, what did you think of Kai Havertz's performance uh, for Chelsea? Kai, well, I, I know intimately that Kai didn't do well because I got zero points for him in my fantasy team. Yeah, that's, that is exactly it. We <laughs> set this up, listener. Rodrigo knew that Kai Havertz didn't play. You would literally only know that he didn't play because you would have checked your fantasy and saw zero it's points true. from him. It's true, though. He I, doesn't. I, yeah. He doesn't add. He doesn't add anything to this side. I'm, he's, been, I'm, he's been a ghost. He's been a ghost on the field, off the field. He's been a ghost. It's agreed. I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep pounding that drum. <laughs> um, moving on to our next game, Manchester United one, West Brom zero. This wah, is ju- wah, wah. <laughs> 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 predictable game in the second half. Coming out in the second half, West Brom wins a penalty. VAR calls it back. So no penalty is given. To be fair, it was like a borderline penalty. It could have gone. It could have been a penalty. It mm-hmm. could have not. Almost immediately, United is awarded a penalty off of this absolute nonsensical handball rule. In perfect comedic fashion, Bruno Fernandez steps up to the point, and he does his little goofy run-up, and uh, the, the goalkeeper for West Brom, Johnstone, who had a sensational game, yes, saves it. And it's incredible. And the West Brom players are, you know, they're all celebrating, going nuts. It looks like they might be able to get away with a point here. VAR coming in, Manchester United's 12th man on the pitch, and says, nope, Johnson was off his line. Bruno gets to take it again. Of course he scores. I thought uh, West Brom had a good chance later. Callum Robinson hit the bar in the 67th minute. I thought actually they played pretty well, all things considered. But, you know, you're not going to beat Manchester United when they have a whole team of referees in some booth just <laughs> pulling the strings for them. And to beat West Brom 1-0 is really not that much to brag about, you know? It's not something you go home to the to the family and kids and like, hey, we beat West Brom today. Oh, really? How'd it go? 1-0. <laughs> On a penalty. <laughs> that got reversed when we missed it the first time. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to complain about this a lot more in future episodes. Donny Van de Beek is yet to start for Manchester United in the Premier League, and it just makes me it's it makes me sick. Pogba me was out sad. for this game. This was his game to start. Mm-hmm. Agreed. To take us to our next game, though, Aston Villa one, uh, Brighton two. This was actually, I think, one of the most exciting games of the weekend. Um, it was extremely fast-paced. I think the way to describe it might even be feisty. It was end to end from like the very first minute. Um, so the game opens up, Aston Villa looks to be kind of dominating in the first 10 minutes. Still, it's feisty, but they look to be kind of the, on, on the attack. Um, and then they overcommit on a play through the middle where, uh, Brighton is building up on the right hand side, but they commit two or three defenders or well, players, I should say a couple of midfielders and, and I think the outside defender to kind of, uh, pressure the ball. And then the central defender included, they all kind of step to the ball and Lalana has just gotten it kind of off of a deflected pass. And instead of like trying to, you know, work his way out of the situation or play the ball backwards, it's not, I think, I think I definitely think it's intentional, but he very quickly kind of desperately just sends the ball through and the Aston Villa line is so high that Danny Welbeck, who's sitting a good five yards behind them, is on his own side. So there's no possibility of this being an offsides call. He picks up the ball at half field, 
runs it all the way into the 18, and then honestly has a clever finish. He he pulls to his right like he's going to hit it hard. Keeper, you know, uh, uh, Emmy Martinez comes down for the block and he just chips it delightfully straight into the middle of the goal. I mean, no, it's not going to go wide, not going to go too high, just crisp, clean chip putting up Brighton 1-0, which is huge because, like I said, the first 10 minutes were feisty, but definitely Aston Villa looked looked like the the ones with in, in control, the ones who were going to kind of try to dominate this game. So the first half continues, and honestly, uh, there is a like just barrage of attempts on the Brighton goal. There are some amazing saves by Matt Ryan, some defenders that just throw their bodies in front of the ball. On the other side, there are a few attempts. They get close. Brighton gets into the box, isn't able to finish either. I think the first half alone probably could have ended 5-3 in Austin Villa's favor, but Albeit, the second half begins, and within the first minute, Aston Villa scores a goal off a free kick. Um, it's uh, Ezra, Ezri Kansa, who meets a ball in the back of the six from a free kick, is able to tie the game at 1-1. Um, and then the game really just continues as it did in the first half, kind of feisty. Um, I, I kind of overlooked this, but Ross Barkley does come out in like the first five minutes of the game because of an injury to a hamstring on a free kick that he took. Uh, so he's out, but I mean, they don't look much less, you know, they don't look to be too hurt by that. Uh, and then in the 55th minute, Solly March, my guy of fantasy team of like, I don't know, like three years ago. Scores a kind of a beautiful, I want to call it a wonder goal for Solly March. I'm not sure it's a wonder goal for like a, a forward, but for Solly March, he hits it, I think, with his weak foot. Um, like just this beautiful bending upper 90 goal across the entire 18 with a defender on him. Um, it's a nice pass from this from from a wide space, but I don't know that it was intentional for him. It was just kind of into the space and he's there to run onto it. Puts it away in the 55th minute, so still with plenty of time left. And they just try to ride this 2-1 lead to the to the finish line. In the final minutes of the game, wildness in, like ensues. In the 91st minute, there's four minutes of extra time. Lamptey gets called on a yellow card for a foul um, on Jack Grealish, which was a, a very light foul, I think, if you look at the replay. Soft, and, ar- yeah. and, and arguably, like... Not worthy of a yellow at all, but especially not worthy of a second yellow. And it is the second. So he gets a red card and he's sent off. Pretty pretty rough. Lamptey played very well in this game. Had some really nice steals, honestly, where he intercepted the ball and was able to lead a counterattack for Brighton that was like a lot of, you know, with a lot of value. So he's sent off with the red. They're down to 10 men. One minute later, a PK is called um, for Aston Villa. Fortunately, VAR takes a look at it and overturns it, and they they undo the call, which I think was the right decision. There's a ball into the box that Solly March essentially tries to swing at, but actually touches the ball first, and then very lightly makes contact with the player afterwards. So, not that I think that even matters, given he touches the ball first, but regardless, they, they, they overrule it, and the game ends up ending 2-1 honestly a really exciting game to watch i like would highly recommend if you're going to go back and watch a game of the weekend watch this one it's pretty fun um and brighton comes away with a win that really feels well deserved too like yeah like they were under threat but like they they were the ones blocking those shots it weren't like they were missing open open sitters you know they were getting in the way defenders goalkeepers you know whatever they had well deserved win i think for them I had the exact same note written down. If you looked at the stat line, you'd think Villa really like dominated this game. But I think while they had a lot of chances, Brighton was there. They were blocking the shots, just like you said. 
Yeah. One, my one little note about Brighton is watching them a little bit more. I noticed they really love switching the ball in the opponent's 18 from their right back to their left back or vice versa. They mm. just ping these really nice balls over the top, switching like the entire side. And they did this a lot in the game against Manchester United, but in this game I noticed it and how it was like really pulling Villa kind of out of their defensive shape. Seemed very clever. Um, I, I like that a lot. And, and well executed in this game. They've definitely done that in previous games where they just weren't able to connect on those mm-hmm. balls and it started to kind of fall apart, but well, well executed. All right, we're going to hop to our next game. Listener at Craven Cottage, the best-named stadium in the Prem. Uh, Everton 3, Fulham 2. Carlo Ancelotti, little nugget for you, he's never lost four games in a row as a manager. That's an amazing stat to me. And this would have been four in a row for him, so he uh, prevented that from breaking the streak. So (laughs) good win for Everton. Rich Arlison back for Everton and Dominic Calvert-Lewin immediately back on the score sheet. So uh, the first goal for Everton is really just purely effort from Rich Arlison. He wins the ball off of a mistake from Fulham in the midfield in the literal first minute of the game. He hits his cross into Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And honestly, I thought it was an own goal when I was watching it live. But Calvert-Lewin, I think he did get like kind of an awkward touch and taps it in. Everton up 1-0. Um, and then pretty quickly, Fulham gets on the front foot to their credit. They did not really like back down from this game and they have a, a, a couple of chances. And then, um, there's a really nice quick pass right on top of Everton's 18 and De Cordova Reed for Fulham gets a through ball. Pickford kind of hesitates coming off his line. He starts to come off and then he goes back and then he tries to come off again it's a mistake from him, and De Cordova Reed just like easily puts it in the bottom left corner to make it 1-1. And then almost immediately coming back, Everton has this really nice play down the right-hand side with a Wobi. Makes me sick. He never would do this with Arsenal. Of course, he does it with <laughs> Everton. He has this really nice run. He cuts through three uh, Fulham defenders on the right, passes to Hamas at the top of the 18, who dings it over to Dinia. Dina hits it one time over to Dominic Calvert-Lewin, uh, who puts it home to put Everton up 2-1. Dina was excellent all game. He was putting in crosses, and he puts in the cross to Decore for the third goal for Everton for them to be up 3-1. In the second half, uh, Fulham really had some great chances and, and really was actually playing some good attacking soccer, I thought. They brought on Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who is on loan from Chelsea, and this game really felt like the game where he started to assert himself as a Fulham player, and he should probably be a starter, it looks like, moving forward for them. He won a penalty on a really nice run in the 67th minute. Cavalero steps up for Fulham, misses it. He just slips on the pitch. It, 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 it could be an errant technique. It could just be, like, unfortunate. It was wet like or, or muddy or soft. I kind of feel like Fulham is our cursed team of the year because oh, they're just mi- missing a lot of like really easy chances, missing penalties. Mm-hmm. And then they they did pull one back, though. L- Lookman runs through Everton's right-hand side and finds Loftus-Cheek, who scores to, to make it 3-2. And if they had scored that penalty, you know, this is a draw uh, against a good Everton team that's basically back to full strength. And, um, yeah, so I, I think... Man, it's tough. I, you know, you, you gotta you gotta kind of feel bad for Fulham at some point. Missing penalties, like that's 
that's, that's hard. brutal. That's a brutal way to come away one got one goal short of a three two game, especially. You know, that's right there. Yeah, uh, a pretty forgettable game, unfortunately for you, Rodrigo. Is our next one? Mm. Sheffield United zero, West Ham United one. I have almost nothing to tell you about this game, listener, because almost nothing happened in this game. It's pretty surprising that it actually ended up being 0-0. West Ham did have some chances. 1-0, uh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, West Ham did have some chances in the first half. The difference was a Sebastian Holler goal in the 56th minute. Uh, there's a deflection off of a ball coming through from Kufal into the middle off of a, a Sheffield United player. And it bounces out to Halar, who's at the top of the 18. He just smashes it in. No, nothing really that anyone could do to stop it. It's not a particularly beautiful goal. It's not really the result of like amazing build-up play. It's just kind of a ball that bounced off of a pass, off of a defender, and he happened to be in the right place. I think that, yeah, she- you know, Sheffield United, I believe, has only scored four goals all season. They're sitting glued to the bottom of the table, I think is the way you described it. Yeah. That has not changed. It's just, it's looking dark days. How are you feeling about your blades, man? I, I honestly, like, I've gotten to this place where I'm like, you know what? If we can't score, fine. Fuck it. Let's not score. Let's just tie every single game. Like, let's get some 0-0 draws and, you know, claw our way out of hell, uh, as they would say on any given Sunday. Like, just... Just fucking don't let him score. <laughs> can we can we just put like everybody and their mother in the back and just hold it tight? Like we don't we don't need to we don't need to try to change the thing that we clearly are struggling to do this season. Like let's just start getting some ties and start getting some points. You know what I mean? Like at yeah. this point, that's what I'm seeing. It's like let's not let's not let the one point skip on by. But anyways, they're clearly having trouble. I, I, I'm happy to forget it. That's fine. No worries. Let's let's move on to our next game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wolves uh, won. Southampton won. So this was kind of. Um, I mean, after we did the the show about Southampton, our Saints uh, recently, I you know I was kind of excited to see this game play out with Wolves. Um, I felt like this was actually a little bit better look for Wolves, uh, and Southampton was kind of I think in their classic form. Um, I I think big picture, a couple of key things to note. One, Triore starts this game and plays all ninety minutes of it. Um, so he starts up as the right forward in there four three three or three sorry three four three, um, and. I think I think the other thing that you notice in this game is that Wolves is a little bit more willing to sit farther back this game. They're not looking to play that same quite that level of like high possession um, pressing that they were before. They still tend to meet the ball a little early, but still only around like the halfway line, right? So they're setting their defensive line right around half field, which seems like a lot more reasonable given the fact that they've been struggling, I think, to be dangerous um, in, the, in, in those high possession situations. Um, naturally, right, given especially what we talked about with Southampton last time, when you give them space, they take that space. So Southampton became the team that was a little bit higher on the field. Um, and like, like we said, I mean, I think that's probably where they're most vulnerable is when they're playing a lot of high possession soccer because you know they they kind of more naturally spring into the attack well and are very direct in play and it's a little harder to be so direct and have that same level of spring when there's just not as much space to play into uh, behind the defense so I think it was definitely a game where 
however purposeful it was, and it feels like it was more purposeful because Traore started the game and he's kind of the guy who who plays better in a, in a counter situation. It seemed like they were making a good decision there tactically when they faced Southampton. Um, so to get to some of the goals, though, the first goal is scored by Southampton in the 58th minute um, by Theo Walcott, um, which was exciting. Um, so there's this really nice ball uh, sent from the defender uh, Genep- De- DiGenepo, um from the left side. goes over into the 18 to Che Adams, who brings it down. His first cross is kind of a half volley or volley that's not really struck that hard, so it hits the defender and seems to be drifting out of bounds. But Che Adams kind of hunts it down and then just rips like a hard driven ball like on the ground back across the goal. And the defender, I think, was a hesitant to first run after the ball because thinking it was go out of bounds, and it's just a step late. Bulk ends up cutting across, and Theo Walcott is just sitting back there, essentially unmarked. Semedo, who has run into the box to guard or to defend that back ball, back post ball, is a little too far into the center and has mm-hmm. completely lost sight over his left shoulder. Doesn't even realize, I think, if Theo Walcott is there. And Theo Walcott gets a very easy finish because there's nobody in the back of the goal to stop him. So they go up 1-0. Honestly, a well-put-together goal. It wasn't, like, perfect. Uh, but Che Adams is able to, you know, find that find that that assist at the end, which was kind of beautiful. Um, a few minutes later, in the 65th minute, Theo Walcott actually gets an a wide open shot on goal. It's a through ball from Che Adams that comes from kind of early, like on the counter. Um, but he just misses wide. That was the that was the goal that should have sealed this game for Southampton. But unfortunately, he he's just timid about the way he strikes it and misses left on a, on a kind of it's not hit that hard, it's not hit that well. It, it just it just didn't look like he he felt confident or or he wasn't really assertive about the hit. Seventy five minutes in. There's a goal by Pedro Neto, who had been subbed on five minutes beforehand for Ruben Neves. Um, Jimenez gets the shot at the top of the 18, hits it really nicely, hits the left bar, left post, comes right back, and Pedro Neto is just running in to pick up the trash anyways, and it actually comes right to him, and he just quickly one-touch strikes it into the goal, grabs it, and brings it back to half field. But unfortunately for the wolf, for the for our Wolves here, they're not able to get another one, and the game ends up being a draw at 1-1. Like I said... I think this could mean good things for Wolves if they're going to start to play a little bit more like this. And when it comes to Southampton, they had they had their opportunity um, to put this game away, and unfortunately, just weren't able to take it here. But they come away with a point each, so you know, not nothing nothing crazy uh, for them on, in, in this game. I'm happy to see Traore back. I like watching him play. He's just a different kind of player, I think, than what you normally see. I also think if Danny Ings is playing in the role that Theo Walcott was. You yes. Know, this could this 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 game could have had a different outcome. Um mm. I thought Walcott the, the goal he scored, he did a really nice job. He was playing as a right winger, right striker, whatever you mm. want to call that, but he had overlapped to the left. And that's like yes. exactly the interchange you had talked about last week with Che Adams and Danny Yang's mm-hmm. kind of swapping around. And I thought he was able to do that. So it's clear he understands what Ralph wants him to do if he's gonna step into that role. But you know, Danny Ings is he, he's he's just lethal up front. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I I thought actually that this this was an a, a, an enjoyable game and an interesting game to get to watch. Um, so maybe another good one to go back and check out. Yeah. Um, moving on to our, our next game, Leeds zero, Arsenal zero. Leeds should have won this game. I'm not gonna go like super hard on Leeds in this 
Leeds should have won this game. They hit the bar three, maybe four times. I counted three. I saw someone else say four. Arsenal only had two shots on goal in the whole game, zero in the first half. The first half Arsenal performance was just abhorrent. It was awful to watch. Willian playing in this sort of like weird, like kind of like drop back, play like a false 10 almost kind of role in the middle. It just doesn't work with him doing that. He doesn't have the pace. He doesn't have the creative passing. It's just, it's not there. It needs to stop. Kind of the difference maker in this game is early in the second half, there's a red card, straight red for Pepe. He headbutts uh, Leeds player Alioski um, in an imitation of Zinedine Zidane. I think rewatching it a few times and reading some stuff about it, it's a, it is a red card. It's certainly a red card. You can't do that. That's obviously you can't do that. At the same time, Alioski clearly flopped. He like didn't really get hit very hard at all. He no. crumples like he was, you know, punched by Mike Tyson. And they're also they, they did a little bit of a breakdown on this, I think, on Match of the Day on BBC, and they were showing how Alioski is like getting in Pepe's face and clearly saying stuff to him all game. So he'd been winding him up. That's what players do. Pepe's a professional. He should not do that. Like you're let your your team down when that happens. Um, but at the same time, like just showing a clip of him headbutting him, it's you know it, it it's it is a little. It does feel a bit unfair. Yeah, um, it's rarely the full story when someone gets to that point. You know, the, the Zidane example is a good one, right? I think it turned out afterward that uh, I don't remember the Italian defender is in Mascherano. I can't remember who it was, but it turns out he was saying like all kinds of like mess up stuff about Zidane's sister. It's like, okay, like <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's not totally nuts. Um, Arsenal haven't scored from open play in over 500 minutes. They currently have the fourth fewest goals for of any team in the league. Um, I thought in this game, they, they looked really muted going forward after the red card. They weirdly almost looked better going forward. I think because Leeds was really putting a lot of numbers forward. Saka and Aubameyang had a couple of really nice runs. Um, Arsenal really badly needs a creative midfielder. And it looks like there's a decent chance they're going to get one in January, which is good. They also didn't have Thomas Partey, who I think he's a big difference maker, and Mohamed Elneny, who is out with COVID protocol. I said this about Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin with Everton, and I was 100% right about this, by the way. Without uh, Richarlison playing, uh, Calvert-Lewin scored one goal in three games. With uh, Richarlison playing, he scored nine goals in six games. Aubameyang is Calvert-Lewin in this situation, and Arsenal doesn't have a Richarlison. There's not another credible attacking threat, so he is the only person who defenses need to sell out on, and they double-team him because Lacazette is not going to score, Pepe's not going to score, Willian is not going to score. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the, it, it's the same exact thing. Like, Aubameyang is clearly a really talented player. They need another credible attacking threat along with him, he, like he, you can't he can't do everything completely by himself um, right and i think one thing to reference there too is that if you want to try to really focus on having one guy be your difference maker and you know that he's going to draw a lot of attention think about a team that does that already right that's lester lester has jamie vardy he's like clearly their biggest threat when he's not on the field they can they almost play completely differently much more passively because they know that that threat isn't quite there and they have to try to work with other things and they know that's not really their strong suit but if you're going to play that way, you can't expect 
that you're going to be able to just play high possession ball up on the other half. That's not how it's going to work. You got a speedy, very effective forward who's going to draw a lot of attention. You need to give him a ton of service and you need to give him a ton of space because that's what makes your job easier as a forward that's fast and good at, at good at finishing, you know? So I, I, when you say they played better with 10 men, exactly. Probably because they invited more pressure. There was more space to play into. And they weren't necessarily preparing for the counter because they're like, these guys have 10 guys. They're not going to attack. That's the kind of draw you need, I think, to try to make a, a single man striker as effective as possible. Give him all the resources you can, you know? But... I, I will. I do want to give a little credit to Arsenal's back line. They played it excellent. Burn Leno was excellent in this game. Kieran Tierney was excellent in this game. When you go down to ten men for you know thirty plus minutes, yeah, that and you're able the whole half. to hold on away, like it, it leads, it hangs goals on teams all the time. It's not like so. There, there's some bright spots amidst the darkness. Uh, I'm gonna hop into our. Next game and our last game before the break, Burnley 1, Crystal Palace 0. Um, Burnley getting their first win of the season. My boy uh, Wood scoring his goal like I needed him to. I'm talking about, dude. I, said, I think I said, did I predict that, that he was going to get his goal against Crystal Palace? Uh, I don't know if I did. But. I think that sounds right. He, yeah. There's sort of an error in the start of the game. Crystal Palace, the ball kind of comes up, and I think it's I think it's Sacco, the defender. I can't. I'm not 100 percent sure who the Crystal Palace defender is. He's trying to head it forward, and the header just kind of comes off awkwardly to Rodriguez for Burnley. Rodriguez with this lovely flick to Wood, and Wood smashes it in the goal to put Burnley up, and that's it. It's Burnley's first home goal of the season, and uh, it secures the three points for Burnley. Wilfred Zaha noticeably didn't play in this game. Um, I think he's coming off of a little bit of a knock from the international break. So Crystal Palace without him, you know, going forward, yes, they had some chances in this game. They had, I think their expected goal was like 1.2. So they had some options. Christian Benteke came close a couple of times. But without Wilfred Zaha, I don't... there's not really as much creativity. There's also there's not much confidence in front of goal and, and quality in front of goal. So I think they, they were limited in that. Um, totally unconnected to anything I've been talking about there, Rodrigo. I wanted to give you two players' stat profile, and I want you to tell me which player you would prefer. little fun exercise here. I love it. I love it. It's fun. Okay. So player A, player B. Goals per 90, player A, 0.24. Player B, okay. 0.2. Expected goals per 90, player A, 0.22, player B, 0.21. Assists per 90, player A, 0.2, player B, 0.1. Expected assists per 90, player A, 0.2, player B, 0.13. I think player A is sounding a little stronger here. Huh, that's so interesting that you say that. Because player A is Nicola Pepe in the Premier League this season and last. And player B is Wilfred Zaha. One of them is a colossal flop. And the other one gets talked about like he's an all-time generational talent. I can keep going. Who's just waiting for his big team to like come sign him too. He's on a team that is also built for him. I'm, I'm popping off about this listener because we were kind of getting into this in a group chat. Where someone was making fun of me for this, for saying that Wilfred Zaha, I, I I just am not sold on Wilfred Zaha being an amazing talent, an amazing player. I think he's on a team that doesn't score any goals, 
And so someone has to score goals and it's going to happen to be him because he's the best player on this not very good team. Um, yeah, small pond. Small pond. Situation. Small exactly. pond where, he's, where he, he, he dictates how the other fish swim. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree that when it comes to Arsenal's flaws in general on the attack, it's structural to me. There are players there that can absolutely perform it's about how you organize them and and trade-offs. You can't just do all the things you want to do with with the personnel you have there. You can still do effective things. They just can't be all the things you want. You can't, you know. Mm. Um, and I think with Crystal Palace, in a way, they're a little bit better about knowing what they can and can't do and not trying to do too much. That said, I think that Zaha, in a weird way, underperforms how he should, given that context. And somebody like Pepe, I would give us of like more of a second chance because I think that he maybe isn't necessarily in a in a, being put in a position to to to, to succeed. You know, um, that's how I would see those two things. You know, it's like those two players on the stat sheet, similar. But what I think I could change to make them better. I feel like there's more I could do for the Arsenal for anybody on Arsenal to be to be honest. Uh, to give them more more to work with so listener i'm thankful for rodrigo predicting <laughs> pepe to win the golden boot next year i'm feeling good <laughs> uh but listener we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with our matches of the week okay listener welcome back we are talking our games of the week and our first game of the week that we're going to break down is Tottenham Hotspur 2 Manchester City 0. Mm-hmm. Rodrigo, uh, I'm going to kick it over to you to take us to this one. Thank you, sir. Uh, yes. So the first of our two games of the week, matches of the week, uh, Tottenham to Man- Manchester City 0. Um, I will I will go through some of the the highlights of this game. But I'm just going to go ahead and, and start with the, the biggest punchline to me, which is nothing about this game was unexpected. Manchester City came out and played the same way that we've been seeing them play, I feel like, the last five, six weeks in a row. Tottenham came out and also played a somewhat similar way that I've seen them play in the past, relying on the same strengths that we see them have, especially between uh, Son and Kane. Uh, Kane especially dropping into that false nine role. And the outcome of this game was pretty much what I would have guessed uh, is like my 95, my 90, 95% confidence interval. Tottenham will win this game and they will win probably roughly two, one or two, zero. Um, now the way that it came to be, uh, this game felt like, like again, didn't feel particularly flashy to me. Now, Manchester City does come away, I think, in this game with a higher expected goals. But it seems to be the same problem that we've seen in every other game. They play a really high possession, high line version of soccer with Kevin De Bruyne often sitting on the 18 line. They filter the ball from right into left, trying to find a way to create some one-two combinations into the 18 where they'll get their shot. Uh, Notably, uh, uh, Gabriel Jesus starts this game, 
and Aguero rides the bench. Um, I'm not sure why that was. Maybe he's not fit. I think he's. I think Aguero is still coming back to full fitness. Is what they so, had said before. Yeah. So they're looking to Jesus to solve these problems for him, and you know. To his credit, he has a few opportunities, a few combination plays where he does get into the box, and there's some good defensive play to keep him from shooting or scoring. But all told, it looks pretty muted, and it has for some time now. Um, they don't, they aren't able to create any particularly large chances, um, and on top of this, they get scored on fairly early on. In the fifth minute of the game, there's a free kick called in the middle of the field. And uh, it seems like there is like a lack of sense of urgency for Manchester City to drop a little farther back and respect this free kick. But they look even more fooled when Kane checks in to the free kick. Both central defenders are kind of drifting with him and the ball is just chipped over all of them to Sun, who's making a diagonal run from the right-hand side essentially on the inside of the right defender, receives the ball, brings it down, uh, right outside the 18 or right inside of the 18, takes a shot on the ground, Megging Ederson, 1-0. Tottenham goes up early. And the thing is, uh, you know, that just, I think in many ways, even more fortifies the idea that, well, let's go get the ball and play in their half and see if we can get a goal back. So it only compounds what I think is already a problem for their style of play. Um, and then they have some opportunities. Um, there is a shot from Kevin De Bruyne in the ninth minute that was probably, to me, the most likely goal um, that they could have scored. There is a, a combination between Jesus and Kevin De Bruyne. They get into the box, but Jesus tries to take a shot that's like essentially blocked, and he goes down. Uh, inside the six, the ball pops out to Kevin De Bruyne, who's been kind of making the trailing run, and he takes a shot that hits Jesus on the ground and goes out of bounds. If Jesus wasn't there on the ground, I think that was going in the goal unstopped. So that was their opportunity in the first you know 10 minutes of the game to tie this thing up. Outside of that, though, there aren't a ton of opportunities that come from open play when they're playing high possession. There is a, two minutes later, a deep ball from Kevin De Bruyne to Torres on the counter that essentially is a 1v1 in the making as he carries the ball from like 35 yards into the, 35 yards out into the box, but a defender is able to meet him there and kind of get him off balance, shield him away from a good angle, and he isn't able to get off the shot. Um, there is a goal two minutes later for Kane that is a beautiful buildup uh, from uh, from. Bergwijn, uh, who gets the ball on the left-hand side, to Sun over on the right. Sun gets the ball into the 18, could take the shot himself, but plays it across to Kane, who's unfortunately offside. Great combination play, again on the counter. Vulnerable City because they've been playing so high. And it's called back because of offsides, and it definitely was offsides. But again, serious vulnerability is shown. Um, and then, you know, another opportunity from, from Manchester City comes what? Off of a free kick in the 14th minute. Kevin De Bruyne, again, sending a ball. Rodri gets ahead on it, puts it directly at the keeper. So there are opportunities here in this game. But when you look at it, right, where are the opportunities coming from? I think like, I feel like a broken record. I feel like people are going to stop listening to this segment because they're like, oh, yeah, this is where Rodrigo talks about how City is playing the stupidest way ever. They come from Kevin De Bruyne, 
sending balls into the box from set pieces or counterattacks. That is the most lethal you can find Manchester City on a consistent basis. But when you play so high and you have Kevin De Bruyne as, as one of the five highest players on the field, the expectation that he's going to be able to create those opportunities goes way down. And the level of difficulty that, he would, that he's meeting to even create them, if he does have the chance, is also tremendously high. And so the first, end, the first half ends 1-0. Uh, and I'm, you know, looking for maybe some changes to the approach. Second half, it's really not much that different. Um, again, you know, Tottenham is sitting deeper, but in a way it's not because, you know, they're just parking the bus. Manchester City very much wants to play this way too. You know, it's not like, oh, they just sat back and that's why they had to do that. No, I mean, they were, they were kind of positioned that way by, by the pressure that City put on the, on them as well. In the 63rd minute, Los Celso scores for goal number two, taking the game to 2-0. Uh, the counterattack that is launched here is, again, it's like it's the archetype of how Tottenham scores goals. And if you are Manchester City, Pep Guardiola, this quote-unquote genius, uh, and you have you know a, a stats team behind you, an analysis of the game visually, you should know that the way they're going to score is they win the ball. Kane checks in from half field into the empty space. He receives the ball immediately. They immediately play directly to Kane, who receives it in space. He turns around, dribbles the ball forward, now on the counter in like a 3v3 situation. He passes the ball quite easily to the left, diagonally to Los Celso, who's making a run into the box. There's no way that they can guard that, at least not fast enough to, to block the shot. He takes the shot and once again Megs Ederson again. So two goals scored on what I would call it, consider a counter. I know the first was a set piece, but it was taken so quickly and people were caught off guard that it really felt like a counter more than anything Agreed. else. Agreed. And both involve Kane chucking into the ball. One, he receives it. The other is played over the top. I mean, this shit is textbook. It's textbook. And the fact that City is struggling to perform is baffling to me um, because, like I've said this a million times, they have the they have the personnel to do this. What made me frustrated was listening to the announcers of this game talk about Pep Guardiola and how he's likely to stay at Manchester City, or we you know at least he's supposed to stay there until like 2023, and how he's going to bring this new era or age of soccer with all these young players, and it's like. I don't think so. He has all the players to have his era right now, next year, the year after that. I don't care if Phil Foden is a project for Pep Guardiola. Like, they should be winning the league right now. I'll put it this way. Of all of the teams in this league right now and all of the circumstances surrounding what they rely on to, to be successful every, every game, City, to me, is the one with the greatest possible personnel depth. And hypothetically, and I'm saying hypothetically because, as you'll see, I'm no longer on this pet bus. Hypothetically, a person that could galvanize them to do so many beautiful creative things. And yet, they are losing 2-0 to Tottenham in a way that is so obvious about how Tottenham is going to play. They're tying teams like Leeds. They're they're not making up the difference in points. And where, Javi, do you know where they sit in the table right now? I haven't even looked. 
think they're here, like here here's here's something that I'm feeling grateful for and thinking about. They're in thirteenth place 13. behind lucky behind number Arsenal. thirteen. Holy shit. I so I think your summary of the game is really accurate. And I think um I guess some takes on two sides of the ball. On the side of Jose Mourinho and Spurs, I think it's um, it's brutal to watch them play because, like you said, it's extremely predictable what's going to happen. Every single time I see Son make a run and receive the ball, I'm like, it's a goal. He's so lethal when he gets the ball one-on-one with a keeper. feels like he never misses those chances. Uh, Kane dropping in false nine is releasing him for those runs and releasing people like Lo Celso, like whoever, it doesn't matter. It feels like it's it's like a really single kind of way to play. We're going to play in this one exact style and sit back and defend a lot. And I thought their defenders in this game played really well. Like they had to play well. Eric Dyer and Toby Alderweireld oh, yeah, they were did. great. They played very well. And, and we're, we're doing what they needed to do to disrupt the city attack. That being said... <laughs> Talking to some Spurs people and hearing about how jazzed they are about this and how they love results, it's like, this is like objectively terrible soccer to have to be subjected to watch because it's like one side gets a zillion shots and can't score, and the other side gets two shots and scores on them both. Um, But credit to Jose Mourinho, right? You get results. The other people can't figure it out. You get results. This is how he, he, he wins trophies. For Pat... Maybe to go a little bit counter to you to Mm -hmm. defend my bald brother, the bald brotherhood, international (laughs) signal. I'm giving out the secret hand sign right now, listener. You can't see it, but I gave (laughs) it out. Um, I I think, to be fair to him, it seemed like the game plan might have been, let's really try to hit Spurs quickly and shell them early and get a quick goal. Because if we get a quick goal against them, then we can drop back then we can force them to play into the game a little bit more and hopefully hit them on the counter. And the first five minutes, they're really shelling Spurs. They had all of the chances to start the game. And the announcers said that when Sun got the first goal, it was very much against the run of play. It was like they won this one foul and and were able to go up. I think it's hard to think about, like, how do you play against a team that can sit back and hit you on the counter? The way is that you probably need to do the same thing, right? You need to sit back and try to hit them on the counter. But I can kind of see the logic in saying, like, let's try to steal a goal really early, really quick um, and 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 put it past them and, and maybe try to put the game beyond reach. Clearly that didn't work, but um, I sort of felt like that might have been the game plan for Pep going in. Yeah. I mean... It would be ideal if they could have scored a goal early um, because if you score early, you can either sit farther back, which I don't think they would have done, or you can continue to play high possession, but now there's a greater sense of urgency to get the ball back. And so that's likely going to mean that Tottenham's going to have to at least pressure the ball a little higher than they're used to, or at least take some take some chances because you know they have no rush to just keep the ball all game. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the, my biggest thing is that 
they have not been successful in their attacking prowess. Like they haven't yeah. been able to score at all, really, let alone early. Like, and when you're playing somebody like Jose Mourinho, who I think does a very good job, whether it's kind of militant or not in the way that he does it, he does a very good job of making teams do what he wants them to do. Um, and I'm, there's no doubt that he was prepared to play a Manchester City that looked like it had the last like five match weeks. Like he had to have been ready for that. And I think that if anything, what was, what was kind of bizarre to me is that they hadn't figured out what to do with Kane dropping in. Like you have two central defenders. They both can't, you can't send them both, but you also don't have to send none. You can send a guy, right? Cause you know, that ball is going to get played to him very directly. Mm-hmm. So you can send a guy, but that should be that should be under, that should be talked about. Like, okay, as soon as there's transition and Kane drops off, you're gonna go with him. We're gonna become a three in the back, and we're gonna all drop and sit centrally, so that if the ball does get played wide, we'll shift our three wherever we need to go, and we're not you know we don't have these spaces in between our defensive line where they can thread balls through. You can do that. And then deny a threat because as much as people want to talk about how great Kane and Son are, the other thing to keep in mind is that if you shut one or both of them down, that's that's a huge – I mean, that's it's a very easy target. You know what I mean? It's like you're attacking the Death Star. And it's like, oh, well, there's this one hole where you can put a bomb and it blows the whole thing up. It's like, okay, well, let's put the bomb there. You know what I mean? You don't say, oh, well, let's let's scour the whole place for other uh, other ways to defeat the enemy. No, just – concentrate your efforts defensively at least on denying that opportunity i didn't see that especially especially when both of them jumped at the first at the first opportunity that led to the goal and only and neither of them jumped to kane on the second one like clearly there was not a good understanding there and i think i think i think pep is kind of a fraud i really do i i didn't think that for a while because i because of the way especially that they played like the like the like what two years ago now or last year because it seemed like he was building something that was working really well but the but what's what i'm realizing is that he is not the kind of guy the way i think of it is coaches that i respect the most are coaches that make something valuable out of whatever they have they always are reaching a greater success than what you would expect right and if that means that you have the greatest players in the world, but you're transforming the way the soccer is played, that's still above, to me, the threshold you can expect, right? This guy seems to me more and more every day that he's so locked into a vision for how soccer can be played that he's detached from what he has and what makes the most sense for that. Um, and I just, like, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it anymore. Like, I'm not as familiar with somebody, for example, like Mar- like uh, Marcelo Bielsa, but that guy is clearly doing something with what he has. He's he's making it work, um, and you know, like, and and I think we'll get to this in the next game, the Liverpool Leicester game. But Klopp, for example, is doing that all the time, and I'm I'm pretty unimpressed with Pep's performance this far into the season especially when it's been the same freaking story it'd be one thing if pep was trying like six different things over the last five you know like six weeks that that would be different to me you know i'd be like oh 
He's trying something. He's, just, he's figuring it out. You know, maybe he's just a building year. He's trying to figure out how it works. But he's not. He's doing the same thing. Yeah, I kind of agree. Insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that is kind of how it feels watching Manchester City right now. Yeah. I was looking at the numbers for Tottenham, and this is not like some advanced stat metric, but looking at their results where they haven't won, they've had, they had more possession than Everton in that game that they lost. They had more possession than Newcastle in that game that they drew. They had more possession than West Ham in that game that they drew. Yeah. And the only other game that they had more possession where they got a result that was positive was in the Burnley game, which everyone is going to have more possession against Burnley. Yeah. But it seems like the 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 way I think the thing that you and I are both driving at is the way that you beat Tottenham is you make them play with the ball more and then yeah. you sell out on their guys who are going to be the real threats cuz like if you picture Tottenham without Son and Harry Kane is Steven Bergwijn going to be scoring on you? Like, Ndombele, maybe, Hoybier? Like, I, I don't, you know, Lacelso gets a goal in this game, but I think the point is like... Yes, 100%. I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I I think, yeah, I, I you know... I agree. Spurs are, Spurs are playing this, this style, and it's been really consistent. City has been playing this style. It's really consistent. If you're Pep, you got to you, you, you gotta iterate here a little bit. Exactly. And I mean, not to get too far into the predictions, but talking about next week's games, we're going to see Chelsea play Tottenham. I was saying this in the chat earlier, like the team that's going to win that game is most likely the team that has the least amount of possession. I guarantee it. Whoever is forced to play with the ball more is the least likely to win. I would Mm -hmm. be surprised because if you don't have the ball and you invite that other team to come into your, into the space, you're making your job easier on the attack. You don't you are you are making your job harder on defense hypothetically, right? Because you're allowing them to come all the way close to your goal. But you're making your job easier on the attack because you're allowing so much more space behind. And for both of these teams, Kane and Son do very well when they're on the counter with lots of space to play into. They're fast and they're smart and they get along very well. Without that space, without that counter, it's it's harder. Can they still do it? Absolutely. We've seen them score goals around the 18. Like, no problem. But you also, in a weird way, have the inverse thing. If you sit farther back, it's easier to defend because there's less space to defend. You can you can strategize more. You let yep. them come. But there's always a trade-off here. And I I'm I'm tired of teams thinking that like having possession like like well our wolves this year i'm tired of teams having this idea that like having possession is like that's the way to success i don't know if that's really i'm not in the locker room but it still certainly seems that way and teams that are more willing to just forget about that and look at trying to get a result which i think jose is pretty much he's very results oriented he's got it he figured it out how do i counter the best give kane the ball earlier in in build up have him be the playmaker and have him have a trailing run into the box after that playmaker role, score a goal. So I'm I'm upset. I'm upset with Pep Guardiola. He 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 invited me out for a nice dinner, and then he never called me back. I watched him coach this team and just disappointing. fail. Disappointing. I'm very sad. Disappointing. Um. But anyways, 
Listener, I think we're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk our other match of the week, Liverpool and Leicester. Okay, welcome back. We are talking Liverpool-Leicester. Rodrigo, I'm going to kick it over to you to break down this game. Yeah, so final score, Liverpool 3, Leicester 0. Um, in some ways, I feel like this score tells the story, um, and it also doesn't. On the one hand, it tells the story because the way that I see this game is that Liverpool really dominated, and the score definitely tells that part of it. Um, what it doesn't tell quite um, is it can't give you the vividness with which Leicester really did look stifled um, in this game. Like, yes, they didn't score any goal. That seems like a tell it. But there's something really unique about watching this game um, that I think is that I think everyone should 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 if they have an opportunity rewatch and, and look through this lens. So let's just start with some of the big big pieces here, right? Piece number one. Liverpool, of course, is dealing with a whole like bag of injuries, um, and so their starting lineup um, features uh, some pretty interesting things. First, they have James Milner playing on the right for uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, he's the right defender. Uh, Joel Matip and Fabinho are in the center, and with Andy Robertson out on the left. Uh, in the midfield, we're playing again a three, so a four-three-three, and the midfield is. Uh, Jorginho Wijnaldum in the center, uh, Naby Keita on the left, and Curtis Jones featured on the right. Up top, we have uh, no Mo Salah uh, for, you know, the COVID reasons. Uh, and Sadio Mane is playing on the left, Diego Jota on the right, and uh, Rob Roberto Firmino in the center. So they're playing with some new personnel, some personnel moving around different positions, uh, some folks from the bench, right? So it's definitely an interesting situation for them. On the other hand, Leicester is starting with what would seem to be kind of their their central cast. They've got Jamie Vardy starting up top, followed by Harvey Barnes and James Madison right behind him, which I think are both great picks. I like I really like having Madison on the field for Leicester. I think he's a good player. Um, and then the rest of the folks are pretty much what you would expect, right? And they're playing in that kind of classic 3-4-3 where they have the wing backs that make them more of like a, a 5-4-1. Um, on defense. So the first goal in this game is kind of a bizarre one. Um, it's 20 minutes into the game. Here's an own goal by Johnny Evans. It's super weird. There's a corner kick that's sent into the box. Evans is, ha- has his mark and kind of, it seems he gets caught in two minds. He's caught in the mind of looking of tracking his, the, the, the forward and the other is tracking the ball. And as the ball is coming in, I think he recognizes that it's coming literally directly to him and reacts by heading the ball, but flicks his head in the wrong direction. I mean, he flicks it directly towards his goal. Like I said, things seems to be lost in two minds about something and just just puts a what would be kind of a beautiful header right into his own goal. Striker's finish. Um, striker's finish. He... He also looks kind of totally weirded out by it himself. He's like, what did I just do? Uh, so it goes down 1-0. Um, 40 minutes in, so 20 minutes later, Diogo Jota gets their second goal, putting uh, Liverpool up 2-0. Um, so 
Andy Robertson gets this ball about 35 yards out on the left sideline. And there is, I'm trying to remember who it is. Oh, it's Albrighton. Albrighton is charging at him off his first touch. I think kind of hoping that his first touch will be bad. It isn't. He cuts inside. Albrighton essentially just swings past him. And then instead of like staying on his right, he cuts it back to his left immediately and sends in this beautiful cross, bending, you know, with his left foot into the 18. And Jota is just running in, perfectly meets the ball around penalty depth, but no more near the near post, and gets this flick header that just, I mean, that's a difficult position for a keeper because and just the smallest degrees of change in how he hits that ball with his head, and it could go near post or back post. Back post, I would say, being the hardest one to get the flick onto because you're running against that direction for the header. But he's able to swivel and get that head and puts it down bottom right. Uh, and and Kasper Schmeichel is, is just not able to react fast enough to stop it. And they go up to zero. Beautiful goal. Um, at halftime, um, there's, uh, I think there's a change. Uh, or maybe it's soon after. They end up moving Milner into the center and putting someone else out on the right for him. Um, but the way they implement the 4-3-3 also changes. They're now playing what looks a lot more like a 4-5-1, where those two outside forwards, Mani and Jota, are sitting off wide and providing more defensive shape in the 4-5-1. And then springing out, of course, to be those three forwards when they need to, but they look more like a 4-5-1. And that is really helpful because at this point, as you can imagine, Leicester's a little bit more invested in trying to get the ball forward, being down 2-0, less interested in looking for the counter. Um, then, uh, in there, there, they have some opportunities. There's in the 60 minute, 60th minute, there's like this kind of awesome, like double save by Allison. Um, there's a free kick that Vardy kind of gets and controls, um, and takes this near post shot. Allison blocks it. And then the rebounding shot, he also is able to, to block. It's kind of this spectacular, Save So there's definitely some opportunities here and there, um, but it, it's not enough. It's really not clear enough um, or lethal enough, I think, to, to say that Leicester had a, a whole bag of chances in this game. In the 76th minute, Firmino also gets this double, like this double off the bar thing. He, he receives the ball at the top of the 18, turns, centri- turns in on the central defender, has a 1v1 with a keeper, shoots it hard, and it hits the bottom uh, off the bottom left, and it hits the post. Bounces back to him, but Schmeichel is able to slap the ball like before he can hit it, and so it kind of he smacks it off of Firmino, which doesn't really allow him to get a shot, and it's bouncing towards the goal, but it's cleared off the line inches, inches, maybe even one inch, millimeters, really, that save this from being a goal. All Brighton is there to clear it, and they end up denying Firmino again for that, you know, that goal that he's been searching for all game. He hits the woodwork, I think, like four or five times in this game. But finally, in the 86th minute, Firmino gets his goal, putting them up 3-0. Milner comes in for the for the corner kick. He takes it, and Firmino gets it, and just, just honestly just gets up above everybody else and slots it in the back post. It's well hit by him. Um, pretty textbook. Uh, feels like it could have been defended better, but it is what it is. Um... So 
in a way, the the way the reason why I see like this the scoreline doesn't tell the story because if you go to see what the goals were, you see, well, there was this own goal, and then there was a set piece in the 86th minute. Doesn't feel like a dominant performance in my mind. There's just this one really nice Diego Jota goal. But if you actually watch the game, Liverpool looks very, very good. You wouldn't really even notice that those players are missing, you know, from their starting lineup. Um, no Thiago Silva. I'm sorry. I mean, Thiago Alcantara. You know, no, um, no Mo Salah. Uh, they have no Trent Alexander-Arnold, right? These are all players that you could expect to provide Virgil a van ton Dijk. of... Not there no, no Virgil van Dijk, right? Of course. Um, these are players that we expect to not just give marginal value, but like really a lot of value to their, to the way that their team plays. Um, but they don't, they don't look much, much less the wiser. Um, and not only do they look good, but they look the same kind of good. They're playing the same exact style of play. They're still sending in crosses from Andy Robertson into the box and, and from James Milner on the right. They're still making these combination plays into the 18 with between combination between Jota, Mane, and Firmino. They're still switching the ball early, making beautiful counterattacks. They're, they're doing everything that they have done with all these other starters. And that, to me, was extremely telling. Um, because what I read from that is this is a team that has been coached in a way that everybody understands how the system works. And when you do that effectively, you create depth for your team because when you sub a player on, they know what their role is, then they can do it right? There's no, mystif- there's no demystifying for them. Hey, well, I know I'm going in for Mo Salah, or I know I'm going in for Virgil van Dijk, or I know I'm going in for Trent Alexander-Arnold. What do I do? <laughs> like, how do I be them? It's like, no, mm. it's very clear what you need to do. And it works because there's multiple attacking threats. It's not like, well, there's only one attacking threat. And the only guy that can pull it off with the same level of, of, of you know, lethalness or whatever is Jamie Vardy. So even if I put you there and you know what to do, you can't do it. It's not like that. They have attacking threats from wide crosses. They have attacking threats by building in. They have a counter, they have a attack, they have a counterattack that's very lethal. They can they can get at you in many ways. So when you make those subs and they're able to play their role, they are adding value to at least one or not multiple of attacking threats, and that is a very hard thing to defend as a team. Now, the way I see Leicester playing this game is it feels to me like they come out in this game looking to be patient, right? They look out like, let's not get too engaged. Let's let them come, and we're going to find our moment for Vardy to score that goal, and we're going to drill them on the counter. Now, to Liverpool's credit, they play excellent defense in this game as well. They, they don't jump off the press. They continue to press, but they respect Jamie Vardy way, way more then I think they have, they maybe they would have had they had their full fleet of personnel. They have guys in the center of the, they had their central defenders dropping deeper to mark him. And they also have one of them going with him and the other stepping into the space. So they can have a successful, they can have a successful press, but they can also drop that back line so that they're not trying to play like the offsides trap on Jamie Vardy. You know, they're trying to make sure that they, he doesn't get the ball at all. And they do a really, really good job of this. He's denied balls uh through many times um and even passes to him short 
are getting stopped. So they do a great job implementing the press. Like they look great. They look great. Um, and, and, and so Lester, I think, starts out trying to play patiently. And then they have this unfortunate own goal. And I think what's even worse about it is that the own goal also doesn't get them to leave their patience because they're like, well, it was an own goal. It wasn't like, you know, they broke us down. We can still do this. Let's keep playing our game. And the nail in the coffin is when Diogo Jota scores near the end of the first half. Because now you've used a whole half of patience. You're down 2-0, whatever the goal's circumstances might have been. And you've got a lot to make up in the second half. And they're about to go into the locker room, switch it up to a 4-5-1, and be able to play a little bit more passively and wait for the counter on you. That, to me, was like where things really, they kind of they backfired for them. Falls apart. Yeah, and then in the second half, like I said, you know they're they're obviously trying to climb a hill, um, and the other team knows it, and it's kind of bunkered down more and looking for the counter. And you know, I just I got to give a lot of credit, I think, in this game to Jurgen Klopp. He's clearly built a team where even his bench players know what they're going to need to do and can do it. Um, and like I said, when you do that, you create depth for your team, not because you have the personnel to fit one for one with every player you swap in and out of the game. You create depth because when people come in, they can slot into a system and perform, yeah. you know, because they know what their role is. Um, and, and obviously they've worked on it. Moreover, his system is kind of fluid. Pressing is a fluid thing. You have to be able to pick up your role kind of on the fly because things don't always play out the way they do. On the counterattack, similarly, you have to be able to kind of work on the fly. And when you have a system that's kind of fluid and people get it, it's even greater depth. Because if you put in a guy that can't quite do what the other guy did before him, that's okay. You're going to stay the same, you're going to play the same style. But it's just going to mean that you do some things a little less or a little bit with less, less, less you know, tenacity or a little less speed or a little bit less whatever. But that's okay because the team will compensate. It's a fluid structure. You're not saying, hey, we have this one amazing playmaker, the golden boot man. Or not golden boot, but like you know, this golden assist guy. And without him, you know, nobody, who can play, nobody can play his role. It's not like that. It's like, well, we don't have this guy. You're going to play there. You can do the role. And it was honestly, it was like it seemed like a masterclass to me in how to and in in the value you get from playing a consistent system, having depth. Uh, I yeah, I agree. This was an amazing performance from Liverpool. Three nil is a big win for any team. This game easily could have been six zero, seven zero. Like Liverpool had a lot of chances and were very, very looked very dangerous going forward, particularly Diego Jata. I think. Uh, a, a couple of things. Maybe to start with Leicester, you talked a lot about Liverpool. I agree with basically everything you were saying about Liverpool. On the Leicester side, I think this has sort of been my general view of the team. If the counter is not on with Jamie Vardy, what's the plan B? Like, what what do they what do they do to score a goal? I can't really picture a Leicester goal that's not a penalty or a counter attacking goal. Mm-hmm. I think. The team, you could describe it as patience. You could also describe it as, like, they just didn't have an alternative. They just didn't really have another idea. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, to me, it feels like Brendan Rodgers has his team equipped really well going forward. He has them, like, players snapped into transition and snapped into the counterattack really quickly for Leicester. They had a few breaks that felt like they could be on. Like you said, Liverpool defended them really well against a lower, lesser defensive-capable team. I think Leicester converts those into goals, and that's what you know. That's what uh, Brendan Rodgers is trying to do. So I think he has the attacking side really figured out. On the defensive end, it feels like 
there's not a very clear system and understanding. Uh, there were zonal marking on all of their cor- corner kicks. I've never seen a team zonal mark corner kicks successfully or set pieces successfully. I don't know why it's even in like the 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 book of coaching. I think that players, it's pretty clear that players lose a runner at some point. Two goals in this game came off of corner kicks. The own goal and the Firmino goal. The own goal, like you said, it's, you, you know, you're seeing Johnny Evans kind of have this moment of confusion. Like he's looking at his guy. He's also trying to track the ball. I wonder if he's just responsible for only man marking rather than zonal marking. Does that look different? And then Sengis Under just gets completely done by Firmino. There's no reason that Sengis Under, who's like, I would guess, 5'6", five, 5'7", five, he's not a big guy. There's no reason he, he should be the one who ends up on Firmino. The only reason he's there is because there's zonal marking. And now I think Leicester have conceded five goals from corner kicks this season. That's brutal. And that reflects to me like Rodgers is putting a lot of emphasis on the game going forward on the attack going forward is not thinking so much about the defensive side of the ball. I And I think with Klopp, I think you're right. Like it's really clear. There's a system, there's a vision. Players are really well drilled. They're coached. They know how to go in. That being said, um, when Diego Jota is replacing your Mo Salah, when James Miller, I know he's old, it's not his normal position, but he's still a really good player when he's coming in to replace Trent or when, Nabi Keita, $50 million players coming in to replace Tiago Alcantara. It's like th- these pieces that are coming in are high quality pieces. It's not like Klopp is trying to plug holes with like, uh, you know, you look at other big clubs, look at, look, like, look at Arsenal, look at Tottenham. When you get past player like 13, 14 on that roster, it's a lot harder for the manager to be able to fit them in. So I think Yes, like Klopp does have this vision, and that's what he has to do. Like he, he, that's what he has to do as a manager. I'm not faulting him for that, but I am maybe like adding a little bit of a conditional. It's probably easier to do that when you have a million world class players who are playing for you. The one player who stood out, who's not maybe in that mold, and maybe does speak to really speak to your point, is Curtis Jones. Uh, I believe he's a Liverpool Academy product. This was his second Premier League start, I think, for Liverpool ever. And I thought he was great. And, like, you could have told me that he was another player with a different name that's, like, a high-caliber name, and I would have been like, I totally buy that. Like, he didn't seem out of place at all. And so I think that that really, to me, feels like stamping home the point that you're making of Klopp gets his guys in on the system, figuring out how to play it really well, and... Yeah, and, and like show that fluidity. Yeah. I think my 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 last note about this game, this game to me feels like if you look back on Roberto Firmino's career, this is like his highlight game. I thought he was exceptional. I thought he was yeah. running the midfield for Liverpool. He's running the attack. He is creating so many chances going forward. His goal is great. And I thought it exemplified like his role as kind of this false nine central midfielder striker like hybrid kind of role um i thought he was really excellent excellent i agree he was this was definitely and i feel like i've seen this kind of building up for him as well i mean there's been so much talk it seems like about his underperformance in terms of like scoring goals and it feels like in the last few games especially where he's gotten minutes he's had a little bit more of a fire under him 
to kind of like produce. And it hasn't changed necessarily the way that he's trying to produce. He's not there like taking like 40 shots a game to try to like get on the score sheet. But he does seem to kind of be playing with this like intensity. And this game was huge. I mean, he was the glue so many times between the things they were doing. Like, and the things he does are sometimes really simple. Like, you know, receiving the ball and giving it back to Mane uh, so that he can make a pass through. And it's a super easy pass, but it's that decision. It's the quality of the decision to not try to make more of it on his own or force the pass himself because he knows it would be just faster, more efficient um, to just give the ball right here away and then make a run and move. He he really is adding a lot of value. I like. I, I definitely think he's a good player. I think that in certain settings where he doesn't have the compliments that he has or he's expected to do more that he might not be able to do it, but he is doing a really good job on this team. So I don't think there's any reason to like question. I mean, soccer is so context dependent, you know? So I, I think he does a great job. Well, listener, I think that's going to wrap up our review of matches of the week. We are concluding with Pep Guardiola absolute fraud Jurgen Klopp absolute goat uh and I think on that note listener we're going to take a quick break and then come back and do some predictions okay listener we're going to wrap up with some predictions for match week 10 so I thought we would start with guaranteed three points what team are you seeing Rodrigo that's absolutely going to smash this weekend uh great question um i think you know it's it's tough it's tough because even the most lopsided games feel like there's just this possibility hanging in the air i couldn't tell you why maybe it's the magic of thanksgiving i'm not sure um i think the guaranteed smash here i'm just gonna go all right i'm gonna go with uh lester's gonna be fulham lester city fulham on 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 monday Monday uh, afternoon, yeah. So I'm gonna see, yeah. I think I think I think Lester's probably gonna come out of this last loss pretty fired up and ready to go. Don't see Fulham being able to pull the same kind of stunts um, that even that they were in this week. Um, and Jamie Vardy coming out with like a brace, if not a hat trick. I think it's a great call. I can't see Fulham defending the counterattack that Lester possesses well at all. Um, I think for my guaranteed three points, I'm going to go against my better judgment, and I'm going to say Arsenal is going to win at Wolves this weekend. Mm. Uh, I think that Partey is probably going to be back. We're not going to have Pepe, so I think there's a chance that Reese Nelson starts, and I think Reese Nelson could really surprise some people. And I actually think that Wolves is a team that Arteta might choose to sit back against a little bit more, and that could be great. So, um, yeah, I've absolutely set myself up to be devastated <laughs> Sunday afternoon, but I'm picking Arsenal to beat Wolves this weekend. Good, good. You got to, you know what? Sometimes you just got to put it on the line. I agree. Uh, what about, uh, for you, what are you viewing as a potential upset looking at this list of uh, games? Great question. Um, oh, so my. <sighs> I got. I should just pick one because you, you know you got to leave some for for the other folks here. I'm gonna go ahead and say Southampton beating Manchester United. I don't even want to call this a freaking upset. 
Southampton is a better team than Manchester United is. They should they 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 might not have the best better players on an individual level, but this isn't even an upset. However, Southampton is going to smash Manchester United. Um, I think, I think, I think Manchester United will probably score. I think Southampton though is going to. I think Southampton is going to score like two or three goals in this game. And I just have this feeling. So we'll see. We'll see. But that's my call, Southampton. I like that pick. I think mm-hmm. I was looking at that game and the other game that I was looking at. I'm going to stay with some hot takes. I think Burnley is going to take some points off Manchester City. I don't Ooh. necessarily I don't necessarily think they're going to be able to beat them. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that uh, Sean Dyche is the alpha bald and Pep <laughs> Guardiola is the beta bald. And I, wow. think that's, I think that's going to show up here. I just think Burnley is consistently, they just have this identity and have a sense of what they need to do. And Manchester United, like, I can just see Burnley stealing a goal on the break and, like, that kind of being the difference, a 1-1 draw. It wouldn't shock me at all. Oh, 100%. I mean, I would also put it this way. I always love betting on teams that have nothing to lose. Like, Burnley's mm-hmm. going in there. They shouldn't win Manchester City. They shouldn't win that game. I always love I always love betting on a team like that. One, one, yeah. Anyways, but uh, let's move on. Let's move on. I, before I get, I'm going to talk about every game on this freaking sheet right now. <laughs> Yeah, game game of the week. I think is the next thing to talk about. Yes, um, game of the week. Oh, oh, you go first. I want to know your game of the week. I I think Chelsea Tottenham has got to be it. I think that for probably for both of us in our estimation, Chelsea Tottenham Liverpool are kind of the class of the league right now. I kind of feel like it's going to end up being a three horse race between them. I'm leaning towards Tottenham being the ones to pull it out and to win the title this year, but I think that this game will really, yeah, it it, it has it has huge implications in the title race. So um, I'm really excited to watch this game and yeah, and and see you know what are the narratives that develop and what team is going to be trending in the right direction. And I'm also I I could be wrong, but I'm 99% sure that Spurs plays Arsenal after this game. So like. Spurs could be riding in the like highest of highs going into mid-December, or this could you know set them in the wrong direction and they bounce back. Like there's so much to to be thinking about for this one. It's a great point. Uh, I mean, I think it's hard to deny that that is probably game of the week. I'll pick another one though that I think is going to be very exciting. But I agree. And in terms of predictions, since that's that is the section we're in right now, I want to reiterate what I said earlier. My prediction is twofold. It's one that the team that possesses the ball more in that game will lose it. And I think that the team that will win this game is going to be Chelsea. I think Chelsea is going to take take Tottenham to the hole. Um, my hope is that uh, Fat Frank, as he's known uh, in these parts, is going to play kind of like he's going to approach kind of the way he did against Manchester United and try to sit a little bit deeper and look for the counter, even if, you know, he does have some play that, you know, try to like seduce uh, Tottenham out. Um, it's going to be tough. To seduce Tottenham out, but I think if he, I think I think we can do it. I think this might be a, a a really good game. The other game I want to draw our attention to that I think could be game of the week. It's Everton Leeds United. Um, I think that Leeds. This was actually going to be one of my possible upsets uh, pick earlier, but I think Leeds could beat Everton. Um, and Me too. if it, and whoever wins this game, I think this could be spicy. This could be what was what this current week uh, that Brighton um, Aston Villa game was spicy as all hell, very feisty from beginning to end. Everton Leeds feel like it's going to have that dynamic. It's going to be 
feisty, fast-paced, end-to-end, I think, probably the whole 90 minutes. So I would be very excited to watch this one. A lot of great games, um, a lot to look forward to, a lot to be grateful and thankful for, listener. Um, Listener, we are grateful for you and thankful for your time, as always. Hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hope you are able to spend safe, quality time with loved ones, people who are important with you. And um, Rodrigo, look forward to talking to you next week, man. So hyped on these games. Of course. I'll be sitting there with my turkey just uh, getting all revved up for our boys, for Burnley to, for Wood to bang in another goal for my fantasy team and show the, the beta bald <laughs> where he truly sits on the table at lucky number 13. Thank you as always, Duffy. I'll uh, talk to you next week.